Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys the story of Albert Fish. So grab your fire department coffee and let's dive in. This is a case suggestion by a listener by the name of Alicia M. So thank you, Alicia. I do want to give a brief warning before we get into this in case you guys are not already familiar with who Albert Fish is, but he is kind of horrific and I've definitely felt sick to my stomach multiple times while researching this. I am going to leave out a lot of gory details. Um, Obviously, there will still be some. um, And there is violent acts towards children, physical and sexual. So I do want to preface this episode with giving that warning prior to going into it. Hamilton Howard Fish was born on May 19th, 1870 to Randall and Ellen Fish in Washington, D.C. At the time of his birth, his father was 75 years old and 43 years older than Hamilton's mother, Ellen. When Hamilton was about five years old, his father did end up passing away from a heart attack, which was mostly just caused because he by old age and some other underlying health conditions. Hamilton was the youngest of four children, having three brothers and one sister. He did have some additional siblings that had been alive prior to him, but they had all passed away at very young ages. The older he got, the more he began to hate his name, Hamilton. He had gotten the nickname Ham and Eggs from that, and so he wanted to change his name. So he did change it to Albert, which was the name of one of his deceased siblings. So I am going to be referring to him as Albert for the rest of our story, and mostly because this is what he changed his name to and because that's what everybody knows him as, is Albert Fish. After Albert's dad passed away, he only had his mom to live with, And she had a lot of mental health issues. It kind of ran in the family. His siblings had all spent time in mental hospitals. And his mom struggled with hallucinations. And so she wasn't able to take care of Albert. And because many of his other relatives, including aunts and uncles, had all been in and out of mental hospitals, struggling with all kinds of different mental illnesses, there was nobody that was able to take care of him. So he did go to the, an orphanage around the age of five years old. The orphanage that he was sent to was called St. John's Orphanage. And he was there for approximately five years. While he was there, he was physically tortured, mentally tortured. He suffered from a lot of beatings, but, which I hate the fact that there's even a but after that sentence, he ended up turning into a masochist and he really started to enjoy the beatings that he would receive and he would end up kind of inflicting pain upon himself a lot i know of this case but i don't know it closely do we know this from um him talking about it later on in life i know it's from him talking about it later on in life but i don't know if the orphanage also had like record of this the fact that while he was there specifically he enjoyed it which is a whole nother thing in and of itself that we're gonna kind of talk about throughout the whole episode is this aspect of his his makeup his psychology so about like i said he spent about five years at this orphanage and then in 1880 his mom was able to get a pretty stable job and was able to start supporting the kids and taking care of them again she did end up bringing albert home from the orphanage i will be honest i don't know how many siblings were there at the same time 
I don't know if any of his other siblings went to the same orphanage. All I know is kind of what happened with him. I Like I said, I know some of his other siblings were in mental hospitals, so they might have been there at this time. So Albert was about 10 when he came home from the orphanage. And then around the age of 12, he ended up making friends with a boy who introduced Albert to a lot of odd sexual practices. Some of these sexual practices, which I'm not going to go into all of them, um, but they include things involving feces and urine. And then kind of as he started to get older, he would start visiting public bathhouses so that he could watch boys undress. And then he was writing, he would also write vulgar letters to women if they had put out like an advertisement looking for anything that it would have their address and stuff so he would write them inappropriate and gross letters when albert was in his 20s he ended up moving to new york city where he became a male pop a male prostitute so around this time that he really fell off the deep end i would say before that he was kind of maybe teetering and the only reason i say that is because his deep end gets very deep and it was around this time that we know he started committing his first real crimes that he would be charged with Some of these crimes would include getting young boys to follow him. He would lure them somehow one way or another and then would bring them home or take them somewhere and torture them and rape them. It wasn't at this point that he was murdering anyone uh, that we know of. In 1898, his mom did arrange for him to marry Anna Mary Hoffman. So the two did get married and they ended up having six children together. So they had Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish were their six children. In 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny and he went to prison for a few years. While he was there, it was reported that he did engage in sexual intercourse with the other inmates. And then as soon as he was out of prison, he turned right back to torturing and raping young boys. At some point... Between 1903 and 1910, I don't have an exact year, he had gone to a wax museum. And while he was there, he saw... Do you know what bisection means? Like, is it someone cut in half? Splitting. That's kind of what I figured. But I was hoping it wasn't. He saw the splitting of a penis. And so he decided that he enjoyed mutilation. And he he would do it to himself. He would put needles in his groin and then flog himself on the groin where the needles were that just sounds like past the point of any like painful pleasure you know like that's just a whole other level i just genuinely don't understand what was going through his head i guess then in 1910 he was working in wilmington delaware and there he met a man named thomas keaton and these two decided to get into a relationship and they were what were in what is called a sadomasochistic relationship. So it was the pleasure for both of them. They, it's not completely sure if Thomas was 100% agreeing to this relationship. The main reason for this is that Thomas was actually intellectually disabled. So we're, it's not sure if he was able to make that decision officially. And people that are listening, I am so, so sorry. It's getting worse. Eventually in their relationship, Albert ended up luring Thomas to an old farmhouse where he ended up torturing him. He kept him tied up for two weeks and cut off half of his penis. Later on, when Albert was confessing to a lot of his crimes, he did say that he originally planned to kill Thomas, but he ended up not doing it because he thought it would bring a lot of unwanted attention. So what he did for Thomas was he put a bunch of peroxide on the wound and 
covered it up with a handkerchief, and left him a $10 bill. So Thomas never came forward and reported this? I believe went to he, the hospital? I believe he did. So he left and never saw Thomas again. I don't have a ton of information of what Thomas did after. I do know that he and Albert never saw each other again. I'm assuming he went to the hospital and reported it, and that's why we have the information that we have. For those of you curious, because I kind of was... in 1910 would be worth $288.75 to this day. I doubt that was enough to handle his troubles, like he said. At this point, is Albert still just working as a prostitute? I believe so. I don't have any other information really about what he did for work. I have some information later regarding what he claimed to do for work, but I don't know if he actually had a, if he actually ever held a job other than prostitution. In 1917, Albert's wife realized that Albert was pretty mentally ill and probably worse than that. But she ended up leaving him and getting married to a new guy. The unfortunate news in this situation is she left her their six children with Albert when she left him. After she left, he himself started to have hallucinations. They were mostly auditory, though. He didn't see anything. You mean like he was hearing stuff? Yeah. So he said at one point that he had wrapped himself in a carpet for a while, but claimed that John the Apostle from the Bible had told him to do it. On July 11th, 1924, Albert saw a eight-year-old girl named Beatrice Keel, who was playing on her parents' farm in Staten Island, and his goal was to lure her away. So he went up to her and offered her some money, saying, if you come look for rhubarb in the fields with me, I'll pay you some money. Luckily, in this situation, the mom had seen what was going on, and she ran out there and chased him away and told him, like, don't come back here, which is fantastic, except for the fact that later he ended up coming back to the farm and was sleeping in their barn. Beatrice's parents did see him in the barn and forced him to leave, and as far as we know, he never went back to their place. In May of 1928, on May 25th, there was an ad placed in the New York world by a man named Edward Budd, who was looking for a job. So the ad read, young man, 18, wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. And Albert saw this ad in the newspaper. So he's like, well, I'm going to quote unquote hire Edward. So on May 28th, 1928, at 58 years old, Albert goes to edward's house and says hi my name's frank howard i am a farmer from farmingdale new york and i'd like to hire you and edward had another friend with him named willie so he's like and i'll hire your friend willie you guys can work at the farm for me obviously as we know albert was not a great guy so his intention in this was to rape and murder edward so he kind of had had that meeting with them and that was the plan he's like i'll come back in a few days to pick you guys up and we'll go my house and i'll show you guys how to work on the farm but when albert who was portraying himself as frank howard didn't show up he did send a letter saying that he would be in touch in a few days because he didn't come back early enough he ended up coming over and when he went the family invited him to stay for lunch they're like hang out with us have lunch with us and while he was there for lunch edward's 10 year old sister grace bud was at the lunch as well and albert's like yeah i'll come back and i'll get you in a few days like that's the plan And then Albert asked Grace's parents if she could come with him to his niece's birthday party that night. And the parents shockingly agreed to this. 
And Albert, a.k.a. Frank, whatever you want to call him at this point, ended up leaving with Grace. And believe it or not, they never saw Grace again. I have to say, I don't agree with that parenting decision. Yeah, I mean, this was a different time period and they had no way of knowing that he was who he is. And i that's what I try to remind myself. You know, it's been over 100 years ago, like 100 and... Well, this specific incident hasn't quite been 100 years ago, but it's been you know, almost 100 years ago there. It's a lot different. I'm also very skeptical of people in general, but I just, yeah. I mean, yeah, it it obviously didn't turn out, turn out well, but it's just an unfortunate, like, there's no way in knowing what, what or who a person truly is. Like, there's no way they could have anticipated that. No, absolutely not. Which, I mean, I'm not blaming them at all. I'm just saying maybe not the best decision. So, That was in 1925. In September of 1930, police ended up finding a man named Charles Edward Pope, and they ended up arresting him because they thought he had kidnapped Grace, which, ask it. I'm surprised they didn't immediately think it was the guy who took Grace and didn't bring her home. They did. However, Frank Howard didn't exist. Okay. So all they had was a description, and that was it, and a fake farm and fake info. Wouldn't they have seen him and ID'd him and been like, that probably wasn't the same guy? I honestly don't know if the family ID'd him at this time. I do know he spent 108 days in jail. He was, at the time, Charles was 66 years old. And his ex-wife had told the police that he probably did it. So I'm assuming the family had come up with a sketch or something maybe. And people were sending in tips. I'm not sure. He did end up going to trial in December of 1930, which... That alone is impressive that he was arrested September and went to trial in December, but he was found not guilty at this. So I don't know if the family testified at the trial. I don't have a lot of info about it, but they ended up, he was not guilty. So he was let free. It wasn't until 1934, November of 1934, which was seven years later, that the Bud family ended up receiving a letter in the mail about Grace. I told you guys, I'm not going to get into gory details. Well, I told you guys I'm not going to go into too many gory details. The letter is really, really gross. Um, It basically just describes selling children for meat and specifically different parts of the body. And then he goes into explaining what happened with Grace once he brought her back to his place and stating that he then murdered her and ended up partaking in cannibalism. The letter did come in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem, and it had the letters NYPCBA, which stood for New York Private Chauffeurs, I always forgot to say this word, Benevolent Association. If you guys want to read the letter in full, along with other letters that I'm not talking about in this episode, there will be a link in our description, um, and it would be under the murderpedia.org one is where it has all of the letters as there are more that we like as there are more that i'll talk about the mystery has been solved here at crime over coffee our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is fire department coffee and you can get some as well and save 15 percent with our exclusive coupon code crimepod15 owned and operated by firefighters and veterans 10 percent of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders and with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength it's a company that all of us can easily support So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So 
because of this emblem, the police kind of had an idea of where to go with this. So they ended up talking with a janitor at the company that that emblem had on it. And he told police that he'd taken some stationery home, but ended up leaving it at his rooming house when he moved out. And so the police were like, okay, well, then we'll talk to the landlady and see who stayed here to determine who would have had this, these envelopes that they could have sent out. And she said, well, this man named Albert Fish and had checked out of the room a few days prior. And she said that Albert's son had sent some money to Albert, but Albert wasn't there. So she was holding on to it. He was supposed to come back to pick it up. So the police officer, the lead investigator at the time, William King, was like, okay, well, I'll just wait here until he returns to pick up his money. Like, he's going to come get it. So he does. And Albert ends up coming back to get the check. And when he gets there, William King talks to him and is like, can you come back to the police station? We're going to do some questioning. Albert ended up lunging at William with a razor in his hand, actually in both hands, and tried to like stab him or cut him. William was able to stop Albert and able to bring him back to the police station. While they were asking him questions about everything, Albert never denied the fact that he had murdered Grace. The only thing that he said is that he had gone to the house to kill Edward, and that was all that he would say, which is basically a confession. Like, I went there to kill this one person. The other person ended up dead. Not going to say I didn't do it. That proves that he was the person who took Grace and saw her alive last. It definitely puts him in a really suspicious place. After Albert had been arrested, he did end up being linked to other murders and kidnappings. He did officially confess to killing both Francis McDonald and Billy Gaffney. So a little bit about the two of them. Francis Francis McDonald was eight years old. And on July 14th, 1924, he was playing on the front porch of his house with his mom. And she saw an old man walk by that was clenching his fists and then unclenching them. And she said it was kind of just a weird sight. But he didn't, like, stop or anything, so she didn't think anything of it. Then later in the day, this same man ended up coming back and was watching Francis play at the park. And witnesses had said that they had seen him. It was some time while he was at the park that Francis was then taken. His body was later found hanging by a tree in the woods. The autopsy showed that he had been severely beaten, sexually assaulted, and then had been choked with his suspenders. And Billy Gaffney was four years old. And on February 11th, 1927, he was playing in his apartment's hallway with his friend, three-year-old Billy, same name, and his Billy's brother, with three-year-old Billy Beaton and Billy Beaton's brother. Billy Beaton's brother ended up leaving to go check on their sister. And when he returned, both Billy Gaffney and Billy Beaton were missing. They later found Billy Beaton on top of the apartment on the roof, but Billy Gaffney was never found. Police and investigators did ask Billy, did ask Billy Beaton what had happened to Billy Gaffney. And he said that, quote, the boogeyman took him, which just breaks my heart because that means he saw something and it was enough to creep him out. It was enough that it creeped him out so that he would call it the boogeyman. Originally, when Billy Gaffney went missing, Peter Kudzinowski was the suspect, but a man named Joseph Maheen ended up seeing a picture of Albert in the newspaper and he was like, wait, no, that's that's the guy that I saw on February 11th near the apartment. And he was and he was on the trolley trying to quiet a boy sitting next to him. And the boy that was sitting on the trolley, Joseph described as someone that as a boy that wasn't wearing a jacket and he was crying for his mom. So it stood out to him, thankfully. And 
he described what the child looked like to police and they were like yeah that was billy gaffney so albert was then officially charged with that disappearance and murder so at one point billy's mom ended up visiting albert in prison to get details of billy's death he gave a description that is extremely disgusting and heart-wrenching and i'm not going to read it to you once again if you want to look at it you can find that on murderpedia.org that's also one of the links in our description but basically what she got out of it is that he brutally tortured and then murdered billy one thing that we briefly kind of touched over in this episode that i'm not going into detail about but he was a cannibal he did partake in cannibalism in regards to billy as well so kind of backing up a little bit because this is kind of all stuff that's happening like intertwined because you know he's arrested at one point and then i kind of flashed back to some other cases that were related to him but in february of 1930 he did remarry a girl named estella wilcox that marriage lasted a week and then they divorced i don't have the exact details on what happened there but i do know that later on that year in may of 1930 he was arrested for sending a letter to somebody who had sent out an advertisement for a maid and whatever the letter was was obscene enough that he was able to be arrested for it he did spend some time in the Vel- in the bellevue psychiatric hospital in 1930 and 1931 where they had him there for observation he was then released so flashing forward again we're going back to march 11th 1935 so albert is arrested at this time for the murder of grace bud and also now for the murders of billy gaffney and francis mcdonald and so his trial did occur in new york It lasted for 10 days. He pled insanity because he said that once again, the auditory hallucinations were occurring and God was telling him to kill children. They had a lot of psychiatrists at the trial trying to give opinions on his condition. And a lot of them ended up saying that Albert is abnormal, but he's sane. And I think that that's the best conclusion for this one is that he was deemed sane. I mean... I will say he was very methodical in his crimes. Like the planning and stuff that went into it doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily representative of someone who is just like a little sporadic and crazy from hearing voices telling him to do something. It doesn't, in my eyes, it doesn't match up. No, I agree. He definitely had the very sadistic, masochistic behavior. And it was, like you said, methodical. Absolutely planned. During the trial, his stepdaughter, Mary Nicholas, did testify as a witness and he's she said that when she was younger albert would make her and her siblings play masochistic games with each other and involved and they were involved in a lot of sexual things with one another which is gross extremely gross but i think her testifying helped as well with what he eventually got he did say that which this part breaks my heart even more too the whole thing breaks my heart but he did say that he was specifically targeting victims that were either quote-unquote mentally challenged or african-american because he said that he thought these people wouldn't be missed which just shows more how awful he was as a human and also reiterates the point that he was planning all of these and he knew what he was doing which is not helping his case at all the end of his trial came and he was declared to be sane and guilty and he was sentenced to death good absolutely deserved he was executed on january 16th 1936 at 11:06 p.m by an electric chair his final words were quote i don't even know why i'm here end quote dude fork off how do you not know how you're there like like was he last second trying to throw like oh 
I it wasn't me. It was the voices. Like I don't know. Work up. Ugh. He also he had said something which I didn't put the quote in here, but he also said something about how he was excited to feel that pain as he died. Just as even grosser and makes me feel like maybe we shouldn't have given him pain for death. I don't know. I've got no idea. I'm just glad he was gone. I guess he does have a few different nicknames. So and things that he goes by. Um. So obviously his name is. His original name is Hamilton Howard Fish, and he went by Albert Fish. He also was known as the Gray Man, the Brooklyn Vampire, and the Werewolf of Wisteria. He did claim, prior to being executed, that he'd killed at least 100 people, and that he had a victim in every state. He was a suspect in three other murders, but Albert specifically denied being involved with them. Those three victims were Yetta abramowitz who was 12 years old in 1927 she was strangled and beaten and then had been found and taken to a hospital but died there this was never solved then in 1932 mary ellen o'connor was 16 years old and she had been murdered and tortured and was found in a woods close to a place that albert had been painting so they think he was involved and then in 1932 there was also 17 year old benjamin collins i don't have any information regarding his death but those three are believed to also have been victims of albert however we only have the ones that i mentioned as official victims with only three of them being murder victims either way i do want to apologize for how gruesome and awful this episode was to the listeners and to abby because i didn't have fun But I will say, and I think I'm probably speaking for most of us, that he got what he deserved. I think the death penalty was a good fit for him. I think that being declared sane was a good fit for him. And I'm not even sure that this is one where I could say, like, having early intervention with his psychological needs would have even helped. Like, I think he would have still been the way that he was. Yeah, this is um, an interesting case to look at in that sense, because clearly from a very early age, there were issues um, you had said mental illness ran in the family. So it's an interesting one in the sense where you, you know, that ongoing thing about murders. Is it psychological? Is it environmental? Is it some combination? This one, I feel like personally, obviously, um, is a combination because obviously he was experiencing abuse and abandonment and XYZ of other things happening to him as a child, but he like found some type of comfort in it. So just just a lot of lot of things wrong in this situation yeah i completely agree with that like i said i I was probably speaking for all of us or most of us when i said that he deserved what he got i'm sure that there's probably somebody out there that disagrees um if you guys have a different opinion than us we will love to hear it feel free to put it in the comments um email us message us whatever let us know your guys's thoughts if you guys have any other case suggestions you guys can send them to our facebook our instagram our email or you guys can always join us on Patreon and send us personalized message on there. We do respond to those very quickly. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.